Let's take our Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, really though, our focus will be in chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. The Scripture says, whoever believes on Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon Him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It was an exercise in futility, though I didn't know it at the time. So, yesterday afternoon, I did something. It may surprise you to know that I did this. But, are we okay? Are we okay, Miss Ellie? Okay? Oh, she was praying. Oh, I'm sorry. Just like a pastor, isn't it? (laughs) Thinks it's his turn, so everybody else got to sit down and... Do what he wants. That's the baby in me. All right, the third born. All right, that's what's coming out. You all know this all too well. All right. So as, as I was saying, yesterday afternoon, I planted bulbs. I know it's shocking for you to think me doing that right, but I did. All right, tulips and daffodils. And I put some in the front yard in, in the ground around a tree. The rest I put in containers on the patio in the back of my house. I woke up this morning, and it was as early as usually is on Sundays in particular, and so the sun had not yet come up. Uh, I'm busy, you know, in what I'm going to be doing this morning. But as the sun came up and I could see outside, I could tell. That rodent of the backyard... Squirrels had dug up every single one of them. Every single one of them. Do you know how hard it is to get back into the mindset of doing something spiritual? (laughs) 
when you're wondering if there's a market for smoked squirrel, all right? <laughs> this, by the way, just, just for curiosity's sake, this is a generational curse, all right? My father spent many a day trapping squirrels on the back deck, letting them out in a wooded area near where he worked because they were stealing all of the bird seed. I don't... He's... He one time kept a count, and I think it was up to three figures, all right? That's what he said. I think they were all the same family of squirrels, all right? But he said, no, I've trapped a hundred. Dad, I don't think that's the case. All right, so this is something that's been passed down from generation to generation. I'm sure my boys will also find themselves at odds with the kings of the backyard, right? I mean, that's, granted, a bit of a silly example But it is frustrating to work and to work and to work at something only to have your efforts either undone or to not be fruitful. And in all fairness, there was no guarantee that things would come up in the first place, all right? Because I was the one who planted them. But that that, that is a frustration to give yourself an effort to something that does not produce. But I think there's a particular type of this that is uniquely devastating. And that is those folks who engage in effort and work and work and work and work, absolutely confident that what they are doing will produce the desired result, not recognizing that what they are doing is going to be of no benefit. This is what Paul is describing at the end of Romans chapter 9 and then all throughout Romans chapter 10. This is the condition of the first century unbelieving Jew in particular. Paul has spent a lot of time trying to explain to us why is it that in the first century that you have all these Gentiles getting saved, yet at the same time, the people designated as the people of God, those who benefited from the words of the prophet, from the written text of the Old Testament, who should have been ready to jump on board when the Savior showed Himself, who should be first in line to bow at the cross and praise God at the empty tomb. Why is it that these folks seem to be trickling into the kingdom? Why are there so few? First century Jews believing the gospel. Chapter 9 explained it from God's sovereign perspective. This is God's electing work. We spent a lot of time talking about this. But understand though, for Paul, the idea of election or God's sovereignty and human responsibility, these are not incompatible. In fact, He gives almost as much space to describing human responsibility in Romans chapter 10 as he did to talking about divine sovereignty in Romans chapter 9. So as we've turned our attention last week to Romans 9, beginning in verse 30, going all the way throughout chapter 10, Paul Paul shifts his attention from the, the sovereign side of the coin to man's side, from trying to give us a glimpse behind the curtain and and really just having to state the facts of God's sovereignty because you and I don't have minds to fully conceive of what that means. Now he's stepping onto our side of the coin. Just because God is sovereign over all things, 
Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion, and mercy on whomever I want to have mercy. Uh, The clay has no right to tell the potter what to do with it. But this doesn't mean that men are without responsibility. No, indeed, that is the precise point, that in fact, these Jews who are by history and lineage privy to the great truths of God's Word are responsible for their unbelief. God holds them accountable for not believing the gospel. Paul's concern here is that what they've engaged in is an exercise in futility. They have given themselves, they've given effort after effort after effort. It's work after work after work, trying to keep the law, thinking that this will then end in righteousness. Paul's entire point in this chapter is to say, that is indeed an exercise in futility. This does not accomplish the end They think it will. And so, Paul gives us an opportunity then to think carefully about what does it mean to talk about human responsibility. Though God is sovereign over His work of saving grace, people are still responsible to how they respond to the gospel. So, what is that? Well, four ways in which people are responsible. We looked at number one last week. We are responsible to believe the gospel. That was verses 30 through 33. Paul was clear. Why is it that a bunch of Gentiles are getting saved and not very many Jews are getting saved? Well, because the Gentiles are believing by faith. When they hear the gospel, they respond that there is no effort in them that can save themselves. They're not trying to earn God's favor. Interestingly enough, what Paul does here in these verses, he uses the analogy of a race, as Paul so often does, the language of running. The Gentiles have not been running the race, trying to earn the prize at the end. Nonetheless, they've earned the prize at the end, because by faith, they've believed in the gospel. The Jews have been running and running and running and running. They've tried to attain righteousness. They've pursued it, but they've They've not attained it. They've not gained the prize at the end of the race, so to speak. Because they've not believed by faith. Instead, they have foolishly assumed that their good works, that's what's going to be sufficient to save them. They have foolishly assumed that if if they just do enough of the law, that then they have right standing with God. So Paul's first concern here is to note well, part of the problem is that they have not believed the gospel. And, and I think we, we took that then as a very simple bit of instruction. That is our responsibility. People are responsible to believe the gospel. And people are held responsible for not believing the gospel. They are held responsible for rejecting the gospel. Number two. This is then, then you can fill in notes. You got them there in your in your bulletin if you'd like to fill in the outline. We are responsible to trust the gospel. Now you may say, Pastor, what's the difference? Believe the gospel. Trust the gospel. You know, I think in the larger theological reality, these two go hand in hand. 
Well, the reason why I think Paul then goes on to, get a, to give a bit more clarity to exactly what is going on here is to avoid a possible error. And that is the idea that the only thing we need to do in order to be saved is to mentally assent to certain facts. But is that sufficient to save? I I think we add a layer of clarity here. The expectation is that we would trust the gospel. In other words, that our belief would be such that we say, I no longer am attempting to save myself by myself, by my own works and efforts and action, and in fact, I'm turning my back on that and depending solely and completely on Christ and His finished work on my behalf. I'm trusting that Christ and Christ alone can make me righteous. Notice how he says this. Again, look with me beginning in chapter 10. Paul begins in verse 1 by reiterating something he kind of said in the beginning of chapter 9, and that's speaking about his own passion and heart for the nation of Israel. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. This, this is my burden. He, he said he, he, had, he had tears, he had continual sorrow at the beginning of chapter 9. And this is just a reiteration of that. I, I, am, I am burdened to the point of praying. I, I inter, intercede on their behalf that they would come to know the gospel. But here's the problem, verse 2. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So what's Paul recognizing here? Well, he's he's giving them a a bit of credit. They really do want to be righteous. There's no doubt about that. These first century Jews, these who are trusting in the law to make them right with God, it's it's not like they're lazy, it's not like they're trying to deceive people, they're not con men. They, they, they are genuine. They are zealous to want to be right with God. How else can you explain the crazy stuff they added to the law, right? I mean, we've talked about this, the, the things that you could and couldn't do. You know, the most famous one to me, the one that I always remember is that you couldn't carry more than a thimble. You know what a thimble is, right? Little, little bitty thing. Some of you may have to think about Monopoly. Okay, so the little, little bitty thimble, you can't carry any more milk than that on the Sabbath. Any more, like a Dixie cup, all right, and you're working. This, this is what zeal without knowledge gets you. You have to do really weird, crazy things. And this is what Paul's concern is for them. They do have a zeal. They have a sincerity. They have a desire to do the right thing. They want to be right with God. They're just wrong in how they're doing it. Zeal without knowledge. Let me ask you, church, have you ever seen anybody, know anybody who's got zeal without knowledge? 
Anybody who really, really believes what they believe, but you look at them and think, wow, you are really, really foolish. Have you ever seen that? Has anybody ever been really sincere and genuine in their pursuit of something? But you think, my goodness, what a waste of effort. I think we've just come through a political season where a lot of that would apply, right? A lot of sincerity. A lot of zeal. Of course, a lot of lack of sincerity too, all right? But a lot of zeal, right? A lot of passion. There was a lot of passion. You know what the problem is in our particular culture? Sincerity, for many people, validates truth. Sincerity validates truth. You'll hear this kind of thing. I'll make a comment to some and say, well, salvation is only found in Jesus Christ. You have to confess faith in Christ crucified and resurrected in order to be saved. And, and inevitably, somebody will eventually say back to me, but what, what about the Hindu or the, the Muslim? They're sincere in following their faith. There's, they have a zeal and a passion. They're sincere in what they believe. Is sincerity a means by which we determine the truthfulness of something? Hitler was sincere. Right? He was absolutely sincere. What I mean by that is he absolutely believed what he was saying, oddly enough, about the Jews. He felt like they were the scourge of the planet. I mean, he, he, wasn't, he wasn't intentionally lying about that. He really did believe that. Chairman Mao in communist China in the mid part of the 20th century killed more people than anybody else in the 20th century, by the way. He's responsible for killing more people than Stalin and Hitler. Just a little trivia note for you. Because he believed in order to serve the communist agenda, you had to be willing to spill blood even of the innocents. That's what he said. He believed it. He was sincere. Sincerity is no means by which we determine whether or not something is true. Now, that doesn't mean sincerity is unimportant. We'll see that it does matter. Matters quite a bit, really, in one sense. Paul is is saying, look, they may be zealous, they may have a real heart for this, but they are ignorant of the truth. That's what he goes on to say then in verse 3. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. So this is their problem. Notice the language of submitting to the righteousness of God. Notice how I I think this this amps up the language. What have they done? They've placed their trust in their faulty view of the law to save them. They've missed the point of the law. They've misunderstood its purpose and its function, what they should be doing with it. They've placed their trust in it. They've submitted themselves to the law as a means of being made right with God. And Paul is saying they've submitted to the wrong source for which they could be made righteous or from which they could be made righteous. This was the wrong source. They trusted in the wrong thing. Rather than trusting the righteousness that is of God, they've sought to establish their own. I think this is such an important phrase. Because I would suggest to you that the majority of people in this world 
the majority of people in this world, we're talking millions upon millions of people, this is exactly the view they have of how they're going to get to heaven when they die. They believe they will get there because they meet the standard of their own righteousness. Listen, every person out there who thinks their own good works will get them to heaven, what are they doing? They are, in essence, deciding what are good works. How many good works do I have to do in order to have enough good works in order for God to let me in? They're making those own determinations. This is what he's saying about what Israel has done here. They've tried to decide their own standard of righteousness because they've missed the point of the law. They've kind of created their own. And as a result, they failed to submit to God's righteousness. They've not trusted then in the gospel. Can I tell you, I think this is part of the problem for a lot of folks. I think this is what's hard. You know know what, in essence, you're saying if you say, I believe the gospel? You're saying a lot of things, especially if you're saying, I trust the gospel for salvation. You're saying, there's no way in this great wide world I even come close to having enough sense or ability to make God bestow favor on me. It's a hard thing to admit, isn't it? For us to look at ourselves and say, the only thing God should bestow upon me is divine wrath. That's hard to say. Oh, because we like to think a lot of ourselves. We like to think, yeah, I'm pretty good. I help so-and-so. I do this. I give this. I pack shoeboxes. Which, by the way, you'll hear more about what was a great packing party yesterday. All right? I do these things. I show up and I... Listen to that preacher, all right? Or, or whatever, whatever the case may be. I mean, there could be any number of ways people try and establish what is their own standard of righteousness. But it's hard to submit. It's hard to humble ourselves to the fact that I can't do anything to earn this. So, this is why then Paul goes on to say, so so not only have they not submitted to the righteousness of God, but here's what they fail to understand. Verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. What does he mean he's the end of the law? I, I think it means this. By trusting in Christ, I no longer have to give effort to trying to earn God's favor. Christ brings to an end any attempt I might engage in to earn God's righteousness by keeping the law. It it doesn't mean that the law is unimportant or insignificant, though Christ does fulfill the law, and in a sense, He is the end of it, He is the point of it. I think in this context, He's saying, for everyone who believes, then no longer are you under the burden of having to keep this law as a means of being made right with God. As we said Last week, the law didn't even serve this function in the first place. The law can't make me right with God because the law, the law is like a big shining spotlight that shows off how every nook and cranny of my being is stained with sin. And that's what the law does. You, you might say, okay, Pastor, so what, would, what should the nation of Israel have done 
But what should they have done before the cross, before the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ? They, sh- they should have done the same thing Abraham did. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Instead of believing in themselves. Are you ready for something? You ready for me to say something that goes against everything this culture says? Are you ready? You're not ready. You are ready. We need to stop telling people to believe in themselves. Some of y'all don't believe that. All right. I'm telling you, though, all of your biggest mistakes happened because you believed in yourself. You can't find me one example where that's not the case. You want to think of one, call me up. I have office hours. All right? Okay? We can talk about it, but I am telling you this idea that, we, that what you really need to do is believe in yourself. No, the only thing I need to believe about myself is I'm not worthy of believing in. But the good news is I don't have to believe in myself. I don't have to trust in myself. I don't have to do something of my own effort in order to make God love me. This is love that while I was yet a sinner, God demonstrated His love for me and that Christ died for me, not because I was worth it, but because I wasn't. God saved me not out of a reward for me being a good little boy, but saved me out of an act of His grace, knowing that I have nothing in me that's worth believing in. This is why the gospel is so critical to get the gospel right. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Go ahead. All right, it's all right. Some people say you shouldn't clap. Well, you should tell the Bible that because there's a lot of clapping in the Bible. All right, so the, the gospel is that which I am responsible to trust in. I believe it. Trust in it. Christ is the end. Christ is the end of me trying to make God happy with me. Some of you need... Listen, there's some of you who are believers who still struggle with this. My guess is there are Jesus-loving people in here who even on this side of the gospel, here's kind of how you still live your Christian life, as if now you've got to do stuff so God will continue to be happy with you. See, here's the good news of this particular understanding of the gospel, the biblical understanding of the gospel, because it's nothing that I've earned, it's nothing that I can lose. It was all done for me. The expectation is that I trust Christ is sufficient to say His death and resurrection is enough. Now, don't misunderstand this, all right? Don't hear this then as a hyper-grace kind of idea, meaning, oh, whoo, all right, Pastor, that is a relief. Man, there's going to be a lot more stuff on my calendar now, now that you said that, okay? There were things I was abstaining from that I guess, uh, ooh, all right, looks like it's back on the menu, so to speak. All right, that's not what I'm getting at. No, you still should live righteously and obediently in this world. God has separated you unto the gospel, and your life should reflect The fact that now you have been transformed into one who is righteous in Christ. Just understand, that's not a means of God being happy with you. That's not what you've got to do to keep God loving you. God's love is expressed in the gospel and the expectation. So we trust it. It's sufficient to save. All right, I want to give you a third one. We'll inevitably... 
pick back up with this again next week. But then, the, then there's a third responsibility here. And I think it takes one and two together. And, and then this. And that is we are responsible to confess the gospel. And here's what I think Paul is going to get at in the, in the rest of these verses that we've read this morning. All, all the way from verse 5 down to verse 13. Paul's point, I think, is, is simple. So what is the means by which we access, then, the saving work of the gospel? Again, keeping in mind, this is from the human side of the equation. Because I, I can just hear it now. Some folks may be hearing this, and you, you were with me during Romans 9, and you heard all that tough talk about sovereignty and predestination and election and, you know, the compassion of God on whomever He wants to have compassion. You, you heard all that, and now, now you're going to hear this and say, well, Pastor, doesn't all this contradict everything you just said? Nope. Why not? Because the Bible says it. So don't worry about sending me an email, all right? I just answered your question. Pastor, no, you didn't. Well, yes, I did. I did. My responsibility and your responsibility is to the Word, not to make sure every little single thing that you think or believe lines up with every other little single thing you think or believe. Isn't it true that in all honesty, we've got a lot of stuff that don't quite line up, right? You don't even understand all about yourself. Okay? I'm not trying to get all Oprah, Dr. Phil on you. Okay? What I mean is you confuse yourself a lot. So what are, why are we to assume that we can all of a sudden figure out this whole sovereignty and free will thing? Just, just know from the human side, yes, I am responsible to believe, to trust, and then to confess the gospel. There is an expectation that I would do just what he says here, and it is to believe in the heart and confess with the mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the expectation. And Paul's going to set this up against this, and this is what I want to get to, and then, then, again, this sausage link will be made, we'll tie it off, let it go, all right? Cooked, eaten, and then we'll get to the next link next week. Verse 5, for Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law, the man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way, do not say in your heart who will ascend unto heaven. So, again, we'll, we'll jump back in with this next week, but understand what Paul is saying here. He's talking again to this first century Jew who is who's still unwilling to submit to the gospel, who's still unwilling to say, God's means of salvation is not found in me being able to keep whatever I think it means to keep the law. It doesn't save. Instead, he gives verse 5. What does save you? It's a theoretical statement, by the way. I mean, it's a quote from the Old Testament But it's as if Paul is using it to say this, all right, if you want to earn righteousness, here's what you've got to do. Verse 5, Moses says this about righteousness, which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. Say, oh, uh, pastor, that seems like a problem. So the only thing then that somebody's got to do is live by the law. Yeah, that's right. You want to earn your way to God, do every single little thing in all of the law, all the time, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 
365 days a year and never, ever, ever miss one. And if you're saying, all right, from this point I'm going to give it a shot, well, you better look back on your past because you should have been doing it all along. That's what verse 5 means. That's what he's getting at. Yes, you can be made righteous if, if your righteousness then is doing all of the law. All of the law. And I'll tell you, we don't have to get into all the details of it, but some of that's going to be tricky, all right? Because it involves your responsibility if your neighbor's ox falls into a hole you dug. My guess is a lot of you don't have a lot of oxen. So you're not going to keep a big part of the law, all right? I'm just telling you, you're not going to be able to do it because you may not have a bunch of oxen out there, okay? And so there's a lot of things like that. How, How many of you are bringing in the first fruits of your crops. You may have one or two that could, all right? Don't do that, all right? Because we can't do anything with that, okay? In other words, there's a lot of this law that you're not going to be able to keep. And as we noted last week, there's, you've broken all of it anyway. <laughs> but, but this is what is required, okay? This is, what, this is what Moses says about the righteousness of the law. But here's the righteousness of faith. It speaks in this way. Notice the language now going from belief and submitting or trust to now speaking, now confessing. And what I think he means by speaking and confessing is owning it. Being willing to publicly identify with this. To to, to be able to, to be willing to declare then the truth of the gospel. And he's saying, in your heart, genuine righteousness doesn't say, I'm going to go to heaven and rip it down to the earth. That's what he means. That, this, this, this phrase here, who's going to ascend into heaven as if you're going to grab Christ and bring him down? Or who's going to ascend into the abyss as if you're going to grab Christ and bring him up? It, it, it's an odd kind of way of saying it, but here's what I think he's getting at. You don't have to move heaven and earth in order to be made right with God. You don't have to take this journey to heaven and, and rip Jesus out of it to come down into, into your life or go down the abyss and rip up the Christ, all right, the Messiah. There, there's no effort on your part that you have to engage in. You don't, have to, you don't have to go through this long, arduous journey in order to be saved. Next week we'll flesh out exactly what he means when he says in verses 9 and 10 that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. I think this is what he's getting at. So you don't have to go through this monumental kind of effort in order to be made righteous. You confess. It's a confession of a heart that needs to be genuine and sincere, all right? Sincerity is not unimportant. It's just not a means of validating truth. But you do need to be genuine and sincere in your heart that you are placing all of your faith and trust in Christ. Believe in the heart. Confess with the mouth. Jesus is the means by which, the only means by which, one is made right with God. So next week, we'll, I'll, I'll flesh that out a little bit more. And then, then we'll hit the last part of chapter 10. And let, let me go ahead and give you a heads up, all right, if, if you may be worried about this. I'm not going to try and shove Romans 11 into a Christmas message, all right? 
you're thinking, man, are we going to hear this all? No, you'll hear it again next year, all right? So don't worry, we got, you know, Christmas, we'll do Christmas, okay? All right? But next, next week we'll, we'll, finish, we'll finish this up. And just as a little tease, I'm going to include next week. Man, this is going to get me in so much trouble, all right? Why I don't like the phrase, ask Jesus into your heart. And you'll have to wait till next Sunday to find out why, all right? Say, Pastor, I've heard that all my life. What are you talking about, okay? Well, I'll be here next week. You better believe I'll be here next week. Make sure that there's no heresy coming out of you, okay? We're good. But I will, we will talk about it in the context of Romans chapter 10. But, but you know, at, at this point now, as, as, as we turn our attention to our response, as, as we're going to sing uh, a great, great hymn about our trusting in Him, I mean, a fitting way then to, to think about this word being brought to bear on our life, first for, for the unbeliever. There's somebody here who's never trusted in Christ. If you have been working to that end by using your own means, then you are in... It's an exercise in futility. It's an exercise in futility. Might as well be planting tulips while the squirrels watch. All right? So that stuff's getting dug up. But the good news is, you don't have to travel to heaven or down into the grave. The hope of the gospel is right here. And it is, trust Christ crucified and resurrected for the forgiveness of sins. Place your faith in Him and Him alone. If by faith you trust in Christ, you can be saved today. You can be saved today. If you'd like to know more about that, I'll be down front. Afterwards, I'll be right up front. Also, after our service is over, if you want to talk more about what it means then to trust Christ as Savior. Then, then to the believer, I would, just, I would just encourage you, one, to use this as an opportunity to thank God for what He has done for you in Christ. To be reminded of very simple truths about the gospel, and yet that is the essence of our hope. Christ saves, that in Him is found salvation and if indeed you by faith have trusted in Christ, know that that is what is required. That is sufficient to make you right in God's eyes now and forevermore. And I would encourage you then to live in faith and obedience and confidence that God has done all that is necessary to save you in Christ Jesus. Let's stand together. I'm going to pray. After I pray, then we will sing. Father God, we do thank you again for gathering us. We're grateful for time in your word. We're, we're thankful for time uh, that we could lift our voices to you and now the opportunity uh, to bow before you and to come under your word. Lord, I pray that you by your spirit would bring that word to bear on our lives. Use it to continue to make us like Christ that we might continue to be faithful to the gospel which you have entrusted to us. Father, I do, I do pray then that you are glorified through any work that is accomplished in hearts and minds here today. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.